Welcome to Help from Future Self. What's happening, Archons? Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, and I am your Keyforge friend. And this week, I am joined by one of my very best Keyforge friends. It's SC Steel. How's it going, Sydney? It's going great. How are you? I'm doing really well. I was just thinking the other day how it's been so rare that you and I just sort of get like one-on-one time on the podcast. And, you know, that kind of inspired me because you're sort of the most recent addition to the podcast. You've been with us what feels like, you know, I, I think years at this point, but it was only <laughs> last year that you became a regular co-host of the show. Oh my gosh, and really? so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It feels like so much longer, doesn't it? Totally. Yeah. So uh, there was the part of me that was thinking, geez, you know, I, I only really know Sydney, I think, through our conversations about Keyforge, which has told me a lot, I think, about your personality, how you feel about games, how you think about games, and little bits and pieces about your life. But I've never really gotten to know sort of your entire history of you and Keyforge. And I thought it might be kind of interesting for us to sort of discover that, uh, you know, for us to, uh, for me as, as a person who gets to talk to you, you know, once a week uh, on the podcast and also in our threads where we discuss what we're going to talk about on the podcast. But I think also for the listeners who have had less time to get to know you. So this one's going to be all about you, pal. Are you good with that? Love it. Yeah, me too. So I guess the the simplest thing for us to start off with is I know for a fact that you come by your history with games as a very, very family-oriented thing. Um, Why don't you give us a little sort of background about where you come to games from? So I, I got into games as a really, really young kid. My, uh, my, I'm an only child. And so my, my parents decided to uh, help teach me some basic lessons that I really wasn't going to learn any other way by uh, playing games at home. So I think one of, one of the games I liked as a kid, which totally out there and, and not ordinary, was Empire Builder. And it was a long, like four, five hour game where you're trying to drive trains across America and deliver goods. And it was it was a combination of my my accountant mindset and my my drive to win. And so like I played this game as as a little kid. And uh, that that was my one of my first introductions to games was was playing board games with my parents. Really? So playing games like that, do you think that kind of influenced uh, did it appeal, I guess, to the way your brain was already wired? Or do you kind of feel like it sort of pushed you towards that direction? Because you just mentioned like your accountant brain, which is obviously <laughs> something you do, uh, you know, as part of your 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 non-games life. But I'm sort of curious if if those kinds of games are sort of the first time you tweaked on to, oh, I'm good at this or, oh, this is a thing that interests me or that engages me. It was actually earlier games like Monopoly and, and Candyland. I actually I got frustrated with them because I didn't have any really like control over the the outcome i really i figured out why um why some gamers look down on those games completely organically because (laughs) i did that myself so um it was something that i i do think my personality drove me to play these games and my parents actually took it upon themselves to use that as an opportunity to to teach me some uh some life lessons and i think that's because of um how how not nicely I probably was when they played Monopoly against me or, or something like that. So it really was something that my parents drove for me. 
So at what point did you start sort of branching out into, I guess, what we would consider to be sort of the more advanced game scene? I guess for a lot of people, they really, uh, they either come to collectible card games or maybe they start playing like German style board games or other sort of more advanced style board games. Where do you think that transition point happened to you? Were you ever a magic kid? Did you ever play any of those games uh, when you were younger? So the first collectible game I ever played was actually Mage Knights, the little minifigure Oh, wow. I know, right? I had a huge collection. And then, of course, they turned into hero clicks. And so my my love for them left with the uh, transformation of them to hero clicks. But I, I went to science fiction conventions growing up. And my parents would drop me off in the game room because it was basically like older kid babysitting. So most of my best friends from science fiction conventions were in those rooms. So I would look forward to going every single time a convention came around. So it turned out to be something that I, I did on the regular basis. And I, I just got to play these really weird niche games that, you know, vendors decided to to bring to non-gaming conventions. So that was that was my introduction to Mage Knights. And that was how I really got into gaming outside of my parents is that I had this game that I really liked to play with my friends at conventions. And there was the ability to play it at my uh, local game store growing up. Uh, Shout out to um, uh, actually, I don't I don't think it's in the same location anymore. But Pastimes um, out in in Evanston, Illinois, was my game store growing up. So they had Mage Nights on the weekends, and uh, I my parents dropped me off, and and that's how I got into the the really deep scene of gaming. So did you play? games like all through high school and university and so forth? Oh, absolutely. I actually, so I was even, even uh, intoxicated with my friends in college. I was the rules lawyer. Um, I don't know. <laughs> have you ever heard of the game Flux? Yes. Oh, I'm very familiar with Flux. Oh, love it. It was definitely our, our go-to <laughs> intoxicated game, but it was, it worked out really well because every time it was somebody's turn, they would look at me. I would tell them what the current rules were, what the current win condition was, and they would play. It, it was, it was great. Man, that is phenomenal. So I guess this sort of leads us through, uh, you know, just sort of in the period prior to when you started playing Keyforge, was there any games that you were playing regularly? Were you playing any card games, any collectible games of any kind? Or was it more of a, you know, just sort of board games with uh, your, your family, with your significant other and so forth? So the last one that I played seriously was actually the Game of Thrones card game. And yeah, I that was mentioning that on a previous episode. Yeah, it was something that I really, really loved. And um, it, it worked into it. It made Keyforge the best possible thing that could ever happen to me, because the one thing I didn't like about it was uh, deck building. So while uh, a lot of my friends who played the game, they you, you're able to have full decks of each house. And as long as you meet the deck building rules, you can have just like in, in magic, you can build a deck with uh, any color and and you know as long as you met the rules then you could build any deck you wanted and i just kept one targaryen deck and every couple of times i played it i tweaked it by one or two cards depending on how it played or what came out recently but i only had one deck because once i had gone through the effort of building that one deck i was happy with it it was winning and it was fun to play and it met all my requirements for for playing that game so that was that was my most serious investment in uh, collectible games before Keyforge. Now, unless I'm mistaken, and I might be misremembering this, so correct me if I'm wrong, that game was discontinued by FFG. Is that correct? Broke my heart. Oh my God. It was something that I could not get back into once they discontinued it. I could not just rebuy all of the cards or even the things that changed just made me so sad that I had to give it up. I couldn't keep playing it. 
Really? So that was actually going to lead into my next question, because I was curious if when that game, you know, was sort of declared over or finished or we're not producing any new product, whether you continued to play. But interesting that just sort of that the idea of it's no longer alive kind of, you know, sort of discontinued it for you as a thing that you were interested in. Well, as a juxtaposition to, to how FFG treated Keyforge, the old cards in Game of Thrones were not valid anymore. So it was also, it was not only the the loss of all the investment of my previous money and time, but it was also the fact that the continued investment I would have to put into the game. So basically I would have to reward them for discontinuing a game I loved by giving them a lot of money to just simply continue playing the game that I loved. And so it was hard for me to to justify that at the, the, the my means at the time. Oh man, that is, that is, that is a really good point. And also one where, you know, I think because of our sort of positive outlook on help from future self, we don't really delve into a lot of the negativity around FFG, but oftentimes people who have been sort of like Netrunner players or the, the, um, the Game of Thrones LCG players sort of bring up those as like indicative of, you know, sort of the way that FFG has treated its customer base in the past. And, you know, I generally try and take those things with a grain of salt, but I think it's also very instructive that you, uh, as a player, you know, could become reinvested in another product from FFG like Keyforge. Absolutely. Once they came out with the concept, I knew that it was going to be something I, I could not live without. Like I had to try it and it turned out to give me all of the fun that I loved about the Game of Thrones card game, but like none of the work involved outside of the game that I hated about it. So out of curiosity then, do you remember what your first game of Keyforge was? Absolutely. So FFG has a huge showing in some of the smaller conventions in the Chicagoland, Wisconsin area, just because it it's so close in, in Minneapolis and there are a lot of miniature games out here. So it just, it simply has a high showing. So one of the pre-release events was at a small teeny tiny convention called Game Con. And it's actually, it's a convention I'm going to again later this month. But it had a release, a pre-release of Keyforge, and you got a free deck if you um, if you demoed the game. So I demoed the game, and my husband also separately demoed the game. So we ended up getting two decks, and then two of our friends that came demoed the game. So we had four total decks, and we ended up playing those against each other multiple times. And I remember the deck that I got, and I, I felt it was pretty good, but I think the the of the four of us, the one friend who never played the game ever again got a Maverick in his first ever deck it was we were so jealous do you remember anything about those early games like was it were you familiar with the premise of the game before you started playing it and then you know did it live up to sort of your expectations based on that I remember getting a lot of things wrong but all of that was in hindsight so at the time I was having a blast I really didn't actually know too much about what I was getting into I'd I played magic before as like a Everybody who plays collectible card games at some point picks up magic, but it mm-hmm. wasn't anything that I, I played regularly, but that gave me enough of an insight into how to how to pick up this game and and just play it. So having done that before, it was it was a super fun experience, especially playing with other people, learning it and experiencing it the same way I was for the first time. Now, I'm curious about this because a lot of folks who come from Magic to Keyforge I think bring a magic mindset to the game and they have to kind of unlearn what they've learned from magic 
to become good at playing Keyforge. Did you bring anything from like Lord of the Rings LCG or any other games to Keyforge that sort of was an impediment to you figuring out how to play? Or, you know, was there anything that you felt was kind of influencing what you thought the game was supposed to be that you sort of had to unlearn in that process? I think that I, I grasped the collecting aspect of it, like where we're collecting amber and not fighting very, very easily. But I think one of the things I had I had the most trouble with was just this, the simple mechanics of when you draw, how much you draw, and when you tap, and or not tap, I guess that's that's a magic, but when you exhaust and unexhaust cards. That was something mm-hmm. that uh, definitely one of the things that we got wrong early on. Yeah, those phases, I think, they come to us like second nature now, but there is right? the part of me that I remember, like those earliest games trying to figure out, like sitting there with a cheat sheet that told me the order in which <laughs> things had to happen to make sure that I was playing the game correctly. But thankfully, you know, there was a lot of those materials out there in that early era. So, I mean, it sort of sounds like it was love at first sight games wise. And your husband also like came into it as hot as you did. So he actually was the one who found out about it before I did. He's really, really into the the gamosphere. He does a, a different gaming podcast. He's really big on Kickstarter. He knows what's going on at all the conventions and the new releases. And so when FFG announced this, he it came onto his radar before mine. And so he told me about it. And then I I dove into the research and, and figuring out how much I would absolutely love it. But it was something that he thought that he would love so had to tell me about it and I ended up I ended up falling much harder than he did (laughs) (laughs) does he still play he sure does but currently his play is with me here at the house but that's uh he he never really got into TCO he actually was someone who he is looking forward to the online client so much because he's Mm -hmm. gotten into uh magic arena over the course of the pandemic and those are the people the the company that created magic arena is the company that's going to create the Keyforge online client. So he is so stoked for that, but he, he never really got into TCO as much. He, he's played it a couple times, but he really prefers the in-person to TCO. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of your favorite decks um, from the time of, since you got into Keyforge, and you provided me a couple of them here. And uh, I, I'm just really curious about uh, the one that you list as your absolute favorite, the Decaying Magistrate. Yes. Yeah, so this one, I, I didn't even realize how good it was going to be before I got it. I just saw that it had three triplicates. So it has three Eddies, three Igors, and three unnatural selections. So I, I just, I was immediately drawn to it as how cool it was. And then I just, every time I played it, every single time I played it, I, I learned something about it and how, how to do things differently or how to best play things or how, depending on what my draw was, I could um, maximize my deck. And so it ended up being one of my favorite decks simply because I didn't even know how good it was at the time that I got it. I noticed that it also has Cincinnatus Rex and Triumph as well as a couple of Centurion Stenopolises. So that seems pretty nasty. Oh, and a Golden Spiral to boot. Yep. It's got the Cincinnatus Rex combo. And that's something, it's so funny. You don't even look at that first thing because of the triplicates and logos and the triplicate and untamed. You're, you're not thinking Saurian right away. You you just go straight to the logos and you're like, ooh, this could be really good. And then you play and you accidentally pull off the Cincinnatus Rex combo and it's like, whoa. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. Uh, also noticing that those three Igors really let you dig for your pieces on this as well. Absolutely. And with the, we, with the Eddies, depending on what your hand looks like when you first get the first couple of those, if you want to to archive things that you don't want to continue drawing. If you just want to 
thin your deck out, you can do it that way. Or if you want to put combos in there, like the Cincinnatus Rex combo or um, the, any anything else that, that really works well with um, unnatural selection or even um, ghost talk to come in later and, and let you reap with, with different cards. Like it's, it's just such a great combination of cards. So do you get uh, uh, many opportunities to play this, what looks to be a fairly powerful deck, or do you sort of keep it in reserve? So it's something that I played it a ton when it first came out. I actually, I played it at the uh, PAX Unplugged Vault Tour. And um, I think, I think I went three and three. I might've gone three and three. So I, I didn't, or four, no, I went four and two. That's right. Because I didn't make top cut the next day, but it was, it was something I got a, such a ton of play in person. And then for some reason, it hasn't been something I've been drawn to because of the the criteria of the games we've been playing recently. It's just not something I bring out a lot. It is my, my favorite deck for what it is. I have, I mm-hmm. have a couple of other decks that, that I also go to. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the priest that scratches randomness, Sydney? So I actually found this one. If I'm not mistaken, I think this may have been the deck that I was playing against Blake when I played him, when I like first met him and played him. Um, but this is a deck that was just my, if, if there is a 75 SAS cap event, this is the deck I'm bringing. And it's, it's an AOA deck, so nobody expects much from it. But its Amber Generation is just so gigantic that it, it makes up for a lot of its other, a lot of its um, other weaknesses. There's so much fun to be had and, and so many individual cards that have such a huge impact that I, I'm usually happy with any opening hand. And it sort of looks like one of those decks that, you know, you really have to sort of tease out all the ways in which it works. And I'm wondering for you as a person who I think really gets into like the nitty gritty of how cards interact and how decks interact, is that kind of what makes this one special for you? So this one is insane with its amber. Um, it basically just has just no artifact control and and no amber control and well, very little creature control. So it's something that it, because it's a racing deck, it's it's something that's a little bit um, out of my norm. I, I like more more controlly combo decks, and so this one is just simply I have a card that's going to get me a lot of amber. I'm going to play that. I, I notice also that it has Oath of Poverty, which is a longtime favorite card of mine, um, and then being able to combine that with things like the proc uh, and the potion of invulnerability and stuff like that, even within Sanctum, is pretty cool. And five artifacts with the Oath of Poverty. Like when each artifact comes out, it's it's like, am I going to use this for what it's it's good for? Or am I eventually going to kill it and get just a ton of amber all at once? Yeah, it's Oath of Poverty is one of those weird little cards, just a diversion here, a diversion here that is so good in most decks that it appears in. Like it's guaranteed that you get at least one amber from playing it. And more often than not, you're going to get like five amber if you even have right. two artifacts on the table, which is nuts. You know, you oh, can yeah. get like multiple keys worth of Amber off of playing an Oath of Poverty in the right deck. And, you know, there's no real. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's mostly just the fact that I think that it's, you know, a rare and it has to have the right deck. But like there are some decks in which it is just a killer card. And with the Proclamation, you can play the Proclamation and in the same turn, play the Oath of Poverty. So let's say they have, well, Proclamation, uh, while your opponent does not control creatures from three different houses, their keys cost plus two. So if they have 
creatures from three different houses. This artifact doesn't really do much, but that's why the Oath of Poverty is so perfect because it already gives you two amber if you're not using it. So it's it's just, oh, I love this deck. Yeah, I'm also looking at that too much to protect and thinking that you could create that big, big amber blast and then still have something in your pocket if somebody has some way of uh, stealing it from you from that era. So why don't we talk a little bit about uh, the deck that has your absolute favorite combo in it, uh, Hernandez of Metblock Shelter. Oh my gosh. So this one is actually, I have to, another another shout out here. Jupiter let me borrow this for when I was in the KFPL and it was something that I didn't even know I loved this combo until I played with this deck because I, I borrowed this from him because I absolutely love the Star Alliance and the disc seemed super, super solid. So the the Saurian lineup was really, really great, but not the first thing. It's so funny. I, I undervalue Saurian all the time, like this and in the Decaying Magistrate. I just, I, I can't seem to love it enough. But when those come out with two six Sempers, it makes it so possible to, to pull off the tribute six semper combo, but also six semper is actually useful in so many different ways. Destroying the most powerful creature, if they have a more powerful creature than you, getting rid of it, getting it off the board, especially like if it's taunting other creatures behind it, like there's mm-hmm. so much use to that card. And having two of them means that I have the flexibility to save one for the tribute later. Also, yeah, being able to use Tribute, Imperial, Scutum, and then uh, Six Emperor Tyrannosaurus if it's your own creature is quite a, you know, that's that's one of the sort of classic uh, Saurian things that sort of would frustrate me back in the day. But because it's such a great combination of cards, and because it's three cards as well, you know, it's not like it's going to happen all the time, you know. It's not like some of the, the more degenerate combos from, from Saurian of that era. Mm-hmm. So is this a deck that you still get to play occasionally, or is it oh, still yeah. in Jupiter's hands? <laughs> nope. I actually, he was, he was nice enough to let me grab this one off of him. He actually let me grab my trio of decks off of him from KFPL, and this has just become my absolute favorite. This is the one that I bring if I if I'm bringing decks to a competitive game. This is probably the first one that comes to mind. So, I guess as we sort of transition to talking a little bit about sort of your your thoughts about Keyforge in general, is there something that you could sort of point to with all the decks that we've discussed that says something about you as a Keyforge player? Do you really think about what kind of Keyforge player you are, or what attracts you to certain decks that makes you want to play them? Combos. I'm definitely a combo player. Actually, you know what's funny? Like I combos have different subsets to them. So one of the things I really like is is a domino effect. So not simply like these two cards go really well together, but this card lets me do something with this card and even possible with this card. So like in Hernandez, we also have um Chant of Hubris and Phalanx Strike Week. Like we have so many other support cards in Sorian that allow me to either exalt or move Amber onto creatures so that the six Semper at the end of all of that is just such a bam card. Like you're setting up for such a really cool thing, but it could all be in one turn. And so I think I think I really feel the combo decks. Those are those are my thing. Really? So, I mean, when you're opening up, I, I guess that means that you really have to like play the decks that you open up in order to be able to discover the combos and then find the ones that are most appealing to you. It's going to be a little more difficult if it's a new set to really see the combos from the outset. You are exactly correct. One of the, <laughs> my husband actually gets frustrated with me because we will, uh, I'll, we'll buy a display between us. And what he wants to do is open them all and then pick the one he wants to play. But the way that I make him play me is we each open two (laughs) seals, play them against each other, and then open two more decks and then play those. So like, I want to play each of the decks 
in the, the display that we get. So that's actually also, funnily enough, how we end up slightly sort of claiming the decks that we own. Because if one of us was the first person to play it, it's kind of like it's kind of like our baby. And so it it we even even though there our full collection is completely shared, if one of us wants to play a deck that the other one like opened first or has a connection to, we we ask like I've asked Chris if I can play one of his decks before, and and he's like yeah yeah it's it's also your deck, but but you know <laughs> that's we've made our connection to it that way, and that's one of the things I like about playing these in person too. That's super amazing. Like, I love the fact that you get to have sort of a Keyforge family dynamic. I've tried a couple times to get my partner into playing, but it doesn't really interest her, and that's fine. And I, I'm totally down with people in relationships should have their own hobbies and whatnot. But I, I do not mind saying that I am slightly jealous that if you want a game <laughs> of Keyforge with a real live opponent, or if you want to talk about Keyforge with somebody, you can do it in your very own home. Uh-huh. It's it's so great when a new set comes out because we can play as many games as we possibly want. Sending the kids to bed early for Keyforge. Oh yeah. Or grandma and grandpa's. <laughs> <laughs> that's the even better play. Oh my goodness, that's so good. Sydney, it's been so good like learning a little bit more about kind of your history with games and learning a little bit more about what your favorite Keyforge decks are just having conversations with us about this. This is one of the things that I love best about doing podcasts is talking to other people who have a passion for Keyforge. So I think this has been a lot of fun and, you know, I, I don't think this will be the last time that we'll do sort of a more conversational episode like this. Uh, th this was a great time. We cannot end an episode of help from future self. However, without the titular segment, this one's called help from future, from self. future self. And I've got one for you this week. Um, I've been super busy with some life stuff for the last little while, and so the time that I've had to play Keyforge online, um, I've often been going into it not from the, all right, I've set aside time. It's literally more like I got like 20 minutes to kill. I wouldn't mind getting a game in. And when I do, what I've noticed is that I have a little bit of paralysis around deck choice on TCO Sydney. Uh -huh. I've been looking at all the decks that I have and going, man, I played that one a bunch. I don't know if I want to play that one. Oh, that one's too competitive. I don't want to get into a game like that. Or I don't even know which one of these to pick. I don't remember what any of them are like or how they play. And one of the things that I realized is great if you're in that scenario, you just have 20 minutes or maybe a half an hour to kill and you decide you're going to get a game in on TCO, just go in and play a game on Sealed. I never use Sealed on TCO, and it is such a great functionality for them to have implemented, and it works like a charm. And the great thing about it, and I say this half jokingly, but it's kind of true. The thing I always say about Sealed is, if you win, it's because you're a great player. And if you lose, it's because you got a bad deck in Sealed. And, <laughs> you know, as much as I'm saying that as a joke, it does kind of take the pressure off, especially for a casual game. It's a truly casual game if you're playing Sealed on TCO. You're not going to play multiple rounds of the same Sealed deck in all likelihood. You may never see that deck ever again. But that's kind of what makes it special. It really is the kind of thing that lets you engage your Keyforge brain from the not from the perspective of assessing a deck for future play, looking for certain things within the deck that you might want to add to your stable. It is literally a case of just playing a game of pure Keyforge. So this is a reminder for myself, and maybe for some of you out there, that that sealed functionality is really a boon to Keyforge players, and we should take more advantage of it. That is incredibly genius. Like I actually, so we do that in person. Like when, when we have a little bit of time to sit down and play, we have enough sealed decks sitting around that, that that's what we do. I never 
thought to do that on TCO when, when, you know, Chris is busy and I, I still want to play Keyforge. That is genius. So you can find us on Twitter at HFFS podcast. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram and on the crucible. When I have time at scuzzy Gruen. Sydney, where can they find you? I am SC steel on TCO and discord. Excellent. We'll be back at you again next week with another episode of help from future self. I think Blake may be back by then until then stay forging. <laughs> <laughs>